I'm sure all business owners are looking forward to 2023, trying to identify opportunities that will enable them to grow their network, grow the business and improve their knowledge. Fortunately, we here at Downtown in Business are hosting two fantastic national conferences, which will help you hit all three objectives. On the 9th of February, we're at Edgebaston in Birmingham for our Planning Property and Regeneration Conference. Speakers include Andy Street, who is the Mayor of the West Midlands Combined Authority, Joanne Rowney, the Chief Executive of Manchester City Council, James Lewis, the leader of Leeds City Council, Danielle Gillespie, Executive Director of Homes England, Tom Stannard, the Chief Executive of the Local Authority, Salford, and Tim Johnson, who's the CEO of Wolverhampton Council. Many other speakers coming along as well and more keynote speakers to be announced. So that's our Property Regeneration Conference, Thursday the 9th of February, 2023, at Edgebaston, Birmingham. Following month, the 2nd of March, we're in Liverpool for the Business Innovation and Tech Conference. This is Changemakers Live 2023, some of the most exciting people around the country talking to us about what their ideas are to solve the many challenges ahead as we move into the new year and, of course, beyond. We have Wes Streeting, who's the Shadow Health Secretary, with us. We have Lord Andrew Adonis, the mastermind behind HS2, an advisor at one time to Tony Blair and to Gordon Brown. Jessica Bowles, the Director of Strategy for Bruntwood, is also joining us, as is Colin Sinclair, the Chief Executive of Liverpool's Knowledge Quarter. Ryan Wayne, the Policy Director of the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, will be talking to us as well, as will Chrissy Wolf, a social media influencer and somebody who is an expert in terms of the Gen Z generation. So join us for those two fantastic conferences. If you want to find out more about them, all the details can be found on our website. That's all the W's, downtowninbusiness.com. Back in 2020, during one of the sort of semi-lockdowns, we were able to get Gillian Keegan into the downtown den to do an interview with us, about 45, 50 minutes. At that time, Gillian was the junior minister within the education department in Boris Johnson's government. Um, wind the clock forward three years, and she's now education minister in Rishi Sunak's government. Also delighted to say that she is speaking at the Changemakers Live conference, which Downtown and Business are going to be hosting in Liverpool on the 2nd of March. So we thought it'd be worth revisiting the conversation I had three years ago with Gillian when she talked about her passion for education, training, sort of changes she'd like to see to progress. Uh, the country's performance in this crucial area that, let's face it, has been problematic for many years now. And uh, I hope you enjoy listening to the now Education Minister, Gillian Keegan, back in the downtown den from 2020.
Welcome to the Downtown Den on this Friday afternoon, and we're absolutely delighted to be joined uh, by Gillian Keegan. Gillian was elected as the first female MP, I understand, for Chichester back in 2017, and she is the Parliamentary Undersecretary for Apprenticeships and Skills, which of course is what we'll be focusing on uh, for much of the conversation today. Uh, a hugely important role, given the situation that we're in and uh, of course will play a, an absolutely pivotal part in, in terms of our uh, recovery in 2021 and beyond. Uh, but before we get into that, Gillian, and uh, your role in terms of that uh, particular important aspect of the economy, and as I say, economic growth in the future, I just wanted to uh, get a little bit of history. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, you may be the MP for, for Chichester, uh, but your heart, I think I can safely say, is uh, is at least a little bit still in Merseyside. Is that right? Uh, yeah, not only my heart, my mum and dad, pretty much all my family. Um, yeah, everybody's in Highton. Um, so, yeah, I grew up in, in Highton, in Oseley. Um, yeah, from a massive, um, large Catholic Liverpudlian family, most of whom still there, most of whom, of course, live within four streets of one another. Um, so, yeah, I, I've gone, I think, probably one of the furthest away. A couple have gone abroad, but the vast majority of my um, aunts and uncles and cousins and my mum and dad still live in Highton. So, yeah, it's the mothership. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the question that everybody from Liverpool gets asked, red or blue? And I'm talking about, about the former politics, obviously. Uh, as I say to them all, it's uh, red for football, blue for politics, but some of them got the wrong memo. <laughs> right. Well, we've we've not got on, off to a great start there, me being an Evertonian, but <laughs> we'll, we'll overlook that. And you probably made a more sensible choice, to be fair. Uh, it, just in terms of the, of the parliamentary uh, move, uh, prior to that, Gillian, what was your career? What were your background? Oh, well, I've had a long business background. So I, I only got elected in 2017. So that's three years ago. Uh, I'm 52 now. And um, I started work at 16 uh, as an apprentice myself in a car factory in Kirby. Um, it was a it was a, a subsidiary of General Motors, actually. So it was uh, Delco Electronics and they made all the sub-assemblies, the electronic sub-assemblies for Vauxhall and Opel cars. Uh, so I started there age 16 and I did my apprenticeship there. I worked there for coming up to about eight years. And I uh, they, they also sponsored me all the way up to degree level. So I went one day a week to started off at Kirby College and then uh, Liverpool John Moores. Um, so I did my degree one day a week and sometimes I had evening classes as well. And then, um, yeah, I worked there up until the, uh, well, in, in, into the 90s. And then I... I got another job actually with NatWest Bank and that was down in London um, and that was a promotion and then I became a senior buyer. So I would kind of ended up in the commercial world after my apprenticeship. So I was a, a buyer of um, plastics and, and electronics for cars. And then I, I moved on from there to the bank and then I became IT procurement manager for the bank. Um, ended up bizarrely going to Tokyo for a couple of years to to basically get all the sort of things that we've got now, all the chip, the chips for the digital payments, you know, that, that that didn't exist in the 90s, but we knew we needed to develop. So I ended up working on sort of new payment technology and digital payment technology. 
did that for a couple of years. Uh, that ended up being rolled into MasterCard. So I worked there for a few years and then ended up eight years in Madrid. Uh, by this point, I'd kind of moved from procurement more into sales. Uh, so I ran up global sales for a company in Madrid and I came back to the UK in uh, 2010. And the thing is, Gillian, given that array of experience in the commercial world, but the criticism that's often levelled at MPs from right across the spectrum is perhaps a lack of understanding uh, of what businesses on a day-to-day basis are having to go through in terms of challenges, in terms of uh, coming up with, you know, just on, not just a day-to-day, but looking forward in terms of what the future holds. Uh, and so I think people on the call today, will be, it'll be refreshing for them to hear someone who has got those experiences, real life experiences, and hopefully now can start to apply some of that into uh, the new role that you found yourself in. And uh, just ask you this question, really. Uh, and and it's, it's not meant to be a criticism of your colleagues, um, because I, I was a politician myself for a long time. So I know for a fact that uh, I'm probably one of the few people who think members of parliament don't get paid anywhere near enough. But nonetheless, do you find yourself sometimes having conversations where you do feel um, actually they don't quite get what's going on in the real world from time to time? Is this Westminster bubble bubble something that actually exists, do you think? Um, I think, you know, within your lifetime, you only get one set of experiences. So I've got tons of business experience. I've got tons of experience, you know, going to a nosy comprehensive school. Not many people left with any qualifications. I've got tons of life experience that through that journey. What I don't have is much political experience. So all the experience I'm trying to get now is, you know, how do I make, how do I get around this? You know, these are different organisations. How do I make the civil service work for me? How do I get to penetrate to my message through these various layers? How do I get stuff done in politics? So they're my challenges. Obviously, if you've been a special advisor or if you've been working around politics for a long time, you probably have all of that in spades. But where you'll struggle is really understanding business and business pressure. So I think you've always got, there's very little crossover between business and politics, between um, the civil service and and, and this sort of real world, as it were, in terms of business. There's very little crossover. People tend to stay in their little groups. So I think whatever you've done, you've always got a big, other world to discover which is the one you haven't been in I mean I love the way I did it because first of all I really really enjoyed business secondly I had to make money um, and I you know no one was ever gonna sort of give me any so I had to make money and it seemed to me a safe way of trying to do that was in trying to get on in the business world as opposed to the sort of um, very insecure world of politics in a way so um, so yeah I, I I basically you know did it that route and I never thought of becoming an MP somebody actually suggested it to me it wasn't I guess you could say I was political because being a conservative from Nosley does stand you out a little bit um you know there weren't many but um but you know that's 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 kind of as far as it went really so I guess you always need to find out what you don't know I think what happens a lot is people don't really spend time finding out why somebody else is is saying what they're saying or why somebody else is coming up with a different answer or why someone else is saying no, what constraints have they got? And I think whatever you do, you've always got to figure out where's the other person coming from? Why, how can I, 
how can I sort of connect myself as well as possible to their objectives and and and, and see if we can get some synergistic objectives as well. Um, so I think that's probably how I'd answer that because I'm lost in the world of the civil service now. You know, I ask a thousand questions a day, you know, which must seem very basic to them. Uh, but in terms of just the um, the parliamentary life that, that you've led for the last three years, I, I know the last nine months, uh, as for all of us, has been very different in, in terms of having to do lots of these things. Um, well, how did you find that transition um, from... Um, the, the business workplace into the political workplace of Parliament? I mean, it's a completely different world. Um, but, you know, again, um, you know, when I found myself age 26 sat in a business meeting in a tower block in Tokyo, that seemed like quite a long way from Heighton as well. So, you know, I've done a few things which have always been, um, I guess I've, I've been nervous doing them, but, you know, the thing is, it always turns out better than you worry about anyway. Um, I, the, the thing about politics is it's a much friendlier world than you think. So not only on your own side. I mean, obviously, um, it is like a bit of a club, you know, the Conservative MPs and the Labour MPs. Um, but I get on with loads of the Labour MPs as well. Um, you know, there's actually more Scouse Conservative MPs than there are Scouse <laughs> Labour MPs, which is quite not representing the place, but from the place. Um, so actually, that might have changed now because there was a couple of new Scouse ones came in in the last election. So that may have changed in 2019. Um, but, you know, everyone gets on a lot better than you think. But of course, it's a different world. I mean, you know, to me, it was... I, actually, I'll never forget when I took my mum and dad there for the first time. And my dad, he was like the weight of history. And he was overawed by the whole experience. And it's we just think about the figures who've been in the House of Commons and what privilege it is to represent people in a place like the House of Commons. And think to yourself, how on earth did you get there? Um, you know, which is always uh, a nice feeling to have. But I would say on the whole, it's friendlier. It's more cooperative. And it's, um, but it's still very traditional. But I quite like tradition. I'm, I like some of the, um, the pomp and ceremony of, 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 of the UK, of the British traditions, of the, you know, the kind of, you know, the royal family. I love all of that. I think it's a great differentiator for our country. You know, no one else does it the same way. And I think it's something to be really proud of. So, um, yeah, it feels very special to, I'm very privileged to be in the position, but there's many, many friendly people. And actually, the person who was the most friendly on the first day in, who really made a, a massive effort was Nicholas Soames, who's Winston Churchill's grandson. Um, and he, he was an absolute gentleman as a fellow West Sussex MP. Um, and he was probably the person that made me less in awe of my colleagues than I probably would have been because they have got many, many of them a very different background from, from me. Uh, you know, they, let's be honest, they are, they are posher in some of them. Um, so, you know, that sometimes you can be a bit overawed by that. Uh, but the fact that it was him that reached out from, to, you know, and to, to, to kind of help me guide me through, um, made me feel a lot more comfortable. Now, I'm aware of how these appointments for ministerial posts are made, but some people on the call won't be. Um, three years in, that's still a relatively new member of parliament. Uh, and it will have been less than that when you are approached to do the job that you've taken on now. It's a hugely important job. We'll get into the nuts and bolts of it in a moment. Uh, but just tell people, I'm sure they'll be interested. How, how did that come about? Um, what, what's the process in terms of 
the appointment to ministerial positions? Well, it is a bit of a black art because you don't know. I mean, ultimately, the, the prime minister and the chief whip choose um, the, and the prime minister chooses the cabinet and the prime minister and the chief whip, but more the chief, chief whip chooses the junior ones. Um, so, I mean, there's a couple of things that you, 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 you can't have done, which is, you know, vote against the government and everything and be a complete rebel. So <laughs> one of the things is somebody that they think they can rely on. Um, then there's, there was also, um, a, you know, obviously it was quite a case, well, quite a, quite a chaotic time actually when I went because we had the whole Brexit party. We had the leadership competition in the Conservative Party. Then we had the election. So there's been a lot of turmoil. Uh, another way um, is, you know, to back the winner. Um, so, you know, if you backed Boris as, as the leader, um, I didn't choose that way. Um, so that wasn't open to me. And then I think another way is, you know, they do look at what they've got and they do try to get quite a representative. But they're very much trying the Conservative Party to get more representative, more women, uh, more northern more working class voices as well um, and the more business people as well so they've been very much trying to to get people who, who have that kind of background so for me I mean I had a conversation they said you know what kind of jobs I said well look obviously I could do business or uh, anything to do with technology despite the start here or um, uh, international business you know I've done lots of stuff there but but the one that I'd love to do that would be um, the one when I, you know, I'd, I'd cover most is the apprenticeships and skills job because I honestly think I am the walking, talking, living, breathing. You will not get a better salesperson for apprenticeships because my apprenticeship changed my life and I just know the power of apprenticeships and um, I just, I, I completely believe in them, even from somebody who hired lots of people, lots of, in lots of places around the world, um, in lots of different roles. I just think apprenticeship is a brilliant model, almost for any career choice. So anyway, they obviously listened and yeah, I was lucky. I got, I got lucky, but you know, I am a bit differentiated because, you know, I have that long career and I think I'm the first apprentice that has been the apprenticeships and skills minister. So um, I'm able to say that on every call as well, which is quite, quite good. Yeah. And uh, we'll get into the, the, uh, the job now then and, uh, as you say, you have a passion for it, which obviously helps. Just as an aside, uh, you probably know this, but Steve Rotherham, um, who's the Metro Mayor. Yes, I do. He was an apprentice. His career. Yeah, he was a Brickie. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's not a bad uh, CV for the apprenticeship movement in one sense. But Gillian, just, just tell me, in terms of when you've looked at that agenda and what you'd like to do, uh, in this area, which is going to be crucially important as we move forward to 2021. First thing I'd like to say is I think probably around 2008, 2009, apprenticeships got a bit of a bad deal on, on the basis that I, I don't, I think the good intention was let's just get people into apprenticeships. But then I don't think that there was enough uh, in terms of ensuring that the right people were matched to the right businesses. And in some respects, by the way, businesses who were geared up to provide the necessary support for those young people coming in. And so I just felt that for a period of time, for a number of years, actually, apprenticeships had had a bit of a bad press. I think that's starting to change. Um, but nonetheless, we still need to do a bit of work around that. So tell me what your sort of 
vision is uh, in terms of the apprenticeship uh, apprenticeships moving forward into 2021? Uh, and the first thing, and you put your finger on it there, is is quality. It has to be an amazing quality experience. It has to basically give you um, some really key skills and 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 knowledge within the, the the sphere, whatever the job is that you're doing, but also the technical skills, the qualifications that accompany that, uh, and it has to have that quality in it. I was quite astonished when I looked because you know if I think back, I did my apprenticeship 35 years ago, and you know if you left um, our school was a comprehensive school of Notre St. Augustine's. You know, nobody went off to university. That just wasn't a thing. So you were lucky if you got an apprenticeship. If not, you did like a YTS or just a normal kind of job and you tried to work your way up from there. Um, and the apprenticeships then, you know, my sister did one, my brother did one. Both my sisters and I were a degree, led to degrees. My brothers, he did a carpentry apprenticeship. So, you know, he then sort of was a qualified joiner and then he, he went off, did other things after that. All of my cousins, everybody did apprenticeships and they were all really good quality. You could get a good job with a good salary and move on from there, you know, career prospects as well. That's what they used to be. So I was quite amazed when I looked at some of those years where they had been, you know, and I think what happened is people were chasing quantity over quality. And, you know, you do, you do get what you measure sometimes. So it was like, you know, big numbers, and, you know, uh, you, you get, get the numbers, something has to give. And, and I couldn't believe it because, well, first of all, I thought, you know what, it'll be working class kids like me, wouldn't I have a clue, would just completely trust that you were going to get a good experience that would be shoved aside with some lousy experience or, you know, being able. I, I remember knocking on doors in, in uh, 2015 when I stood in St. Helens and seeing young kids um you know at home and I'd be like what are you doing at home you know why aren't you working or studying and they'd be like oh you know I did an apprenticeship it was terrible it was really awful it was like filling one form and I, did, I wasn't learning anything and you know and, and you know we cannot let young people down with their you know when they put their faith into an apprenticeship so their number one thing is quality the second thing is for them to be available at every as many occupations as possible the last one I signed off just uh, last week was a space engineer believe it or not all the way up to all the levels. So they start at level two, which is GCSE level equivalent, and they go up to master's levels. So, so degree and you can do your master's. Um, not MBAs, that was something that we took out of the programme because it was going to be too expensive and take the money from the other end. But for masters in specific areas, um, most of those are in health and, and um, in, in the health service. But, you know, that there's a you, almost any job that you can get via a degree, you can get via an apprenticeship. And if, if, if anything, you can probably get more, um, more secure way into a career path using an apprenticeship, particularly the high level apprenticeships. So that's my vision that they're very high quality. They're in every profession, every occupation. They start at the, the entry levels and they go up to the, the top levels. And people who start can progress as well. You don't just come in and you're one of these for life. You can progress as well using the apprenticeship system. It's open to all ages. Um, so I think we've got the foundations of a very solid, um, very solid system. And we've just put all, all of the, the, the standards, we've put a, a new standard in place as well to make sure that they, they are of the right quality, working with leading employers to design the apprenticeships. Um, and I think now the quality is something that is, is a lot better than those days. 
but we just need to build on that. The other thing is making sure everyone knows about them. I sometimes think they're the best kept secret in the whole country. I, I mean, sometimes I speak to young people and, you know, there'll, there'll be a group around table of apprentices and quite a few of them will have been to university and then they'll be doing a level four apprenticeship in digital marketing or or HR or law or something or, or, or accountancy. And they'll say, you know what? No one ever told me that I could have avoided all that debt and I could have done this. And they'll get me to qualify to be an accountant via this without, you know, with a company paying, with me getting a job, with me earning as well. Nobody ever told me about it. So I think that's the other thing for, to make sure. I mean, for some people, they want to go to university. And, you know, our, our, both, both our boys went off to university. They couldn't wait to escape us. Um, but, you know, and, and sometimes that's a driver, you know. But um, I just want to make sure that they everybody knows about them because they are, I believe, fantastic. And if I was doing it today, I would still do a degree apprenticeship and I'd probably do a T-level uh, before that on the way to, um, to, to my career. What do you think we can do, Gillian, to improve the, the marketing and the awareness uh, of apprenticeship opportunities because i think you're quite right so a lot of young people out there don't really know um how they access those apprenticeships uh, and indeed you know whether or not they would be suitable candidates i think often you know kids will leave school without qualifications and think well that's me done uh yeah. we need to find a way don't we of, of getting those messages out there definitely um you know and as you say those Kids who leave school without qualifications, which was about 90% of the kids in our school who had, you know, fewer than the four GCSEs or whatever you were supposed to get. Um, you know, most of them didn't didn't leave with that. Um, be lucky if they left with one or two. Uh, most left with nothing. Um, and, and actually, there's two things. The first is, if that's happened, you know, you're not done because your apprenticeship, they'll help you with your maths and English, which you need to pass your apprenticeship. Um, but your level two apprenticeship, you can either do the GCSE again or you can do functional skills so and that support is there to help uh, and it's in a better environment as well you can do it in college and you can do things that are more related to whatever profession you're 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 studying um, but also there's a lot of people I've met and this is what I love about apprenticeships uh, who have got to be you know in their 40s or 50s they left school with no GCSEs I was talking to a fella not long ago called uh, Andy and he's my favorite story because he works for an ambulance service and he said he worked like insecure low-paid jobs all his life um took from cleaning he was a toilet cleaner in a nightclub he had three different jobs like trying to keep everything going and you know sometimes he'd lose one etc and he did that for years from school for years he was now in his 40s and he was on his level four he'd started level two and he's now on his level four on his way to becoming a paramedic and you know he said it's changed my life it's changed how my kids see me it's changed everything and that is the story of an apprenticeship. I mean, it changed my life and it can change anyone's life at any age. So how we get it out? Well, first of all, has been the schools. Um, so, we, you know, we've recently got a much better program in schools to, to inform. Well, actually, to be honest, I don't know if it's really working on the ground yet or whether that investment's really flowed through. But we've we've got... Um, a better approach to careers uh, through careers hubs in school where they get to interact with lots of different businesses and professions and get to know all the different routes. So that's that's what we've just set up. 
um, and that's that's quite important. Um, making sure that the, the people are aware of them is the number one importance. Once you go on the site, apprenticeships.gov.uk, and start to sort of Google what you could do or search what you could do, you'll be amazed. The other thing is a lot of people think, and this is in the sector as well, I, I've found people say it to me regularly in the DfE and people I come into contact with. They're like, well, you know, sometimes apprenticeships are good for those people who are good with their hands. And it's a good job we're on Zoom when they say that, because I think you've got to be kidding. You know, it's just another route sometimes to to the same place. You know, I say to people, I've had people from Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, INSEAD, all work for me from my apprenticeship and Liverpool John Moore's um, one day a week. You know, this is, this is just a different way to skin a cat. And I think that's the other message we need to make sure that gets out. Degree apprenticeships, I think, are a very important part of the brand image because now everyone thinks they want to do a degree and it's a very aspirational thing to do and if you can do a degree apprenticeship then that's interesting because you get you get a degree but you're also going to be working at the same time and you'll get a job for sure uh, from probably from the company that uh, sponsors you if not you'll be highly valuable so I think that's 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 really what we need to focus on so careers careers in school making sure there's enough opportunity um, and then obviously uh, making sure people know that they come at any age, at any stage. Yeah, and those stories are very powerful, aren't they? They're the, they're the tools, really, that can drive those messages. Uh, the Andy story, for example. But I was going to ask you, actually, um, you know, apprenticeships, again, often associated with young people, but you've just come up with an example there immediately uh, about somebody who's older person doing apprenticeship, getting the qualifications at a later age. Uh, and what I'd suggest, Julian, is we're going to need more of that uh, because what we do know yes. is the pandemic is now displacing lots of people. We are going to see a rise in unemployment. We've already seen one, probably going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, and so, again, you know, these become more important tools uh, for us to be using. And the older people who may be uh, losing the jobs, redundancy, we'll have business owners on this call today, Julian, who... I've got people furloughed at the moment. They're keeping everything crossed that by the time we get to January, February, they can retain those staff. But where they can't, is there a particular portal, a particular access point where they could start to send older people to look at the apprenticeship option? Yeah, it's the same one, apprenticeships.gov.uk. And there's even... The other one is um, the National Career Service. They can phone up the National Career Service um, and they can have a chat um, as well. Um, so if they just Google that, I do have the number somewhere, but I don't want to give you the wrong number. Um, but I'll give it to you afterwards so you can put it out. Um, so the National Career Service, give them a call and they'll tell you how to navigate your way through that, particularly yeah. if you haven't done that for a long time. But I have about half the apprentices in this country, so there's been nearly 5 million apprentices since um, trained since 2010, just, just, just about 5 million. And it's pretty much half and half adults and younger people. And I've met, there was a conversation at first, which people were saying, would you want to go on an apprenticeship if you were older? You know, would it feel like you were going back to school or whatever? Um, and you know, sometimes they're called different things, but but largely, I would say, you know, I think apprenticeships are the the, the best things in sliced bread. In fact, I de- I designed my own to become an MP. I think they're a brilliant model of, of of learning how to get some 
and where in life. Um, but there's a lot of people now, a load of adults, and there's some brilliant ones. There's a lot of people who I've met who also, you know, they've always wanted to work in like the health service, the being there, or to or to to be um, a paramedic, um, or you know, to 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 actually work in some of those professions, uh, or even in in mental health and stuff like that. There is tons of vacancies, and there's seventy different apprenticeship routes into health and social care jobs, all different ones all levels um, and I've met many people now who have I, I think because I'm the, the only apprentice in the village everywhere I go they all run after me and say um, you know you know I've done one I've done one I was in our, our hospital um, about it was about a year ago and uh, a woman ran after me she was probably in her 40s early 40s and she said um, she said oh I just want to let you know um, I've, I've passed my apprenticeship I said oh brilliant and uh, I said, what were you doing before? She said, I was a domiciliary for 16 years. I said, is that a posh word for a cleaner? She said, kind of, yeah. She said, I've been here working as a domiciliary for 16 years. And she said, and they, they gave me the opportunity because I've been working there. And now she's a children's pediatric nurse. You know, now she'll have left school probably with very few uh, qualifications. And I keep trying to get this into everybody's head at the DFP. Just because somebody left school with no qualifications does not mean that they are a level zero or a level whatever they are as capable as anyone of getting every qualification that's out there it's just life didn't turn out that way and you know the school experience didn't turn out that way we all can see uh, how easily that happens and certainly I, I come from our school so but but you know it's that understanding that you know you can actually use this and there's so much support in doing it that it's it's a really great route if you're not that confident as well. It's a really great route because there's some brilliant stories out there. Two and a half million adults are now in jobs that they never thought they'd be in through the apprenticeship system. Uh, let me just go back to the process of this, Gillian. I, I think this is a problem. You may disagree with me. Um, I actually went to a sixth form college uh, when I left school. Uh, I went to school in Skelmersdale, so if you think Heighton was tough, uh, and uh, again, very unusual for somebody to go into any sort of further education uh, from mm. where I was, but I ended up going to to Oral, actually, to a place called St. John Rigby, a uh, fabulous place, uh, but I didn't know that the option at that time for me potentially could have been this apprenticeship route, and there was certainly no signposting of that opportunity from the sixth form. Um, now, that was, I won't tell you how many years ago, but it was a few years ago. Uh, and I think the way in which we fund our education now, and historically the way it's been funded, is we will encourage schools to set up sixth forms because financially it can be a lot more lucrative for them. But that can prevent people whose more natural progression will be through an apprenticeship going to I declare an interest here by the way I'm a governor of the city of Liverpool College mm -hmm. we often find kids who great college oh it's, it's the best you know it's it, look at it results recently outstanding um but if you we often find kids come to us maybe a year after they've gone into sixth form and and I just think we need to have a bit more of a mature conversation at that level to say to schools Look, this is about the child. You know, it's not yeah. about financial viability of a school or a profitability or any of that. 
It's about the individual. And we need to basically provide a bespoke package. And if it's better for that kid to go to a college and through an apprenticeship scheme, let's encourage that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, you know, there's certainly an incentive in the system, which, um, I mean, I would have thought, I've learned such a lot, uh, actually, coming from the private sector, the public sector. You come, the private sector, you know, it's known as being profit, uh, you know, orientated and, you know, uh, kind of ruthless or whatever. Well, it's very honest about what it's doing, the private sector. I've come into the public sector and I've seen the worst behaviour ever. And you think, you honestly think that they would just do the right thing, do the right thing for the person that needs it, do the right thing because, you know, that's that's kind of what you need now. But sometimes there's these incentives and you think, no, no, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, we've seen this sometimes with, um, you know, some of, some of the type of qualifications that people do. You look at the qualifications and think, that's rubbish. You know, that's not, not going to get anyone anywhere. But, you know, you see that there's a value chain that's developed as a result of it. Um, so I think I think I, I was quite surprised at seeing some of it, that, you know, that that kind of I was surprised to think that we had to actually put together a clause to force schools to talk about apprenticeships and other options at all, which was the Baker clause. We had to put legislation in to force them to do that. That that was a surprise, actually. Um but of course, you know, the financial situation is that, you know, the child attracts the, the money. Um, and therefore, you know, there is this incentive. Um, I, I, you know, obviously, as the apprenticeships and skills minister, I, I'd very much like to change that because I just think, I just think it's wrong. It's not, it's not for the system to be rewarded. It's for the individuals to be rewarded. I think that there's the customers of the whole of our education system is the individual learner and then the business or employer they're going to work for, whether it's the NHS or whether it's Amazon, whoever it is, they are the customers. The customers is the, is the individual learner. The vast majority of people need to work, right, in this country. This, this idea, you know, I'm working class, very proud working class, but everybody has to work now. We're all working class, really, um, in terms of, um, you know, that, that, that there's very few people who can afford not to work. So, you know, knowing how to navigate that, and it's not just about money, it's about, you know, having having that, that sort of, well, that, that, that personal um, achievement and, and, you know, being a purpose and loving what you do and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think, I think the system sometimes has gone off a little bit in to its own world and I think it's not helpful to do that um, and and actually yeah it's 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 a kind of perverse incentive it's an unintended consequence and it must be massively difficult to to manage and handle but I just think that sometimes it, it's it's about narrative it's about leadership and it's about saying to schools in those situations do the right thing and I know sometimes that's difficult but that's a conversation we can continue to have, I'm sure. Um, and uh, uh, certainly it's something that we're conscious of, uh, not just at Liverpool College, other FEs that I work with across uh, the country have similar challenges. And uh, I think it is something that we need to look at. The other scheme that's come to the fore, uh, one of the Chancellor's uh, initiatives uh, is Kickstart. Uh, and we've just 
put that out again. We're, we're working with the college actually here, but we're working with colleges in Manchester and Birmingham as well. Uh, because, of course, SMEs uh, were to an extent excluded from the scheme because you had to take on 30 people. Yeah, to aggregate, yeah. Yeah, and, and so we've we've sort of, you know, it's this idea that the colleges act as the consortium. And, and the great thing then is, of course, it frees the business from bureaucracy as well. So, again, I'd say anyone looking into this, if you're interested in taking on a Kickstarter, come to us and we'll point you in the right direction. Massive uptake. Uh, for that, Gillian, uh, you'll be pleased to hear. Uh, but tell us the thinking behind it. Well, I mean, obviously, it's to try and ensure that young people, usually there's a lot of young people who would leave school at 18 or uh, leave university and then want to get on to, um, you know, get get get, on, get into a job. Um, and we were obviously concerned that there's so much uncertainty that we wanted to try and um, make that decision easier for businesses when, you know, there's all this sort of virus uh, chaos going around um, so that's that's obviously what's behind it so to, to give those um, young people an opportunity to get into the workplace and to you know I, I say to young people this is like a six-month job interview take it take it as such you know this is your chance to get some experience be able to impress to be able to get some things on your cv what we're doing after well what i'm doing now as well is uh, the, the first kickstarters will probably work uh, start working around november and um, so i'm working with the WP, with the employment minister, because what I'd love is for Kickstarter to then turn into an apprenticeship or a traineeship if there's somebody that needs additional help uh, as a pre-apprenticeship before um, an apprenticeship. But I, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to try and um, really sort of tie those things together as well. Um, if there isn't a full-time job opportunity to have, or, or even, I, I still think an apprenticeship is a great way because it will then continue the training and continue the progression of, uh, of young so that's that's the vision. Um, the kickstart scheme, I think, will be very successful. But I think really the key thing is uh, when you look at success is the long term success. How many people manage to stay employed or manage to move on to an apprenticeship or move on to a different opportunity, having that experience, having been able to prove themselves uh, to move on to a different opportunity. I mean, there are opportunities even today, you know, in the in the apprenticeship system, there's six thousand nine hundred vacancies. And since the um, since the start of the first lockdown, we've had uh, eighty thousand uh, vacancies advertised on there. So there are still, you know, and a lot of them have focused on young people as well. So there are there are still opportunities. And anyone who's looking at, you know, is concerned. It's clearly not been an equal and even uh, economic downturn either. If you're working in health, food, or digital or IT, you're more more busy than you were. And, yeah, and the health services can't get enough people. Um, you know, the, we've got Gatwick Airport not far from here, and our um, the CEO, CEO of our, our mental health trust. You know, the first thing she did was go to Gatwick and say, "Does anybody want to come and retrain to be working in mental health? Because we've got this ambition for parity, but we haven't got all the people trained up yet." So there's huge opportunities because there's loads of skills gaps as well. But of course, that means you need to get the skills, and that's the challenge and that's that's where kickstart will help people on that journey if they're young uh, and apprenticeship schemes help you know for, for any age as well but that's 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 the objective if you can't get a full-time job because obviously the schemes um apprenticeship requires uh, you know an employer to we've incentivized them 
um, with pay, you know, an upfront payment of £2,000 or 1500 quid if you're over 25. So we've incentivised them. But if, if that, but still, there could be uncertainty, which means that's not enough to make a decision. Um, then we're also, that's the other part of it, which is really making sure we've got enough skills training that's more flexible than anything we've delivered before. And that's where we're looking at boot camps and we're looking at uh, different online, offline uh, offers so that adults can start to retrain to get into some of the areas that um, perhaps they've always wanted to get into or they can see there's vacancies in. Final point from me and then anybody who has a question wants to put that into the chat room, we can have a look at that. Stephen Hesketh uh, from one of our uh, fine hotels, in fact, several good hotels in Chester and Liverpool, has, has put a monologue in there. So I'll get to that in a moment, Stephen. Um, but the final point from me, Gillian, um, and you will know this well from your days in the world of commerce yourself. We've been talking in this country for years about skills gaps. So, you know, growth companies finding it really difficult to attract the right sort of talent, to recruit the right people. Uh, and I often feel as though, you know, there's lots of money being spent in the area of apprenticeship skills and training, but it's not quite matching what we need in terms of our businesses. Uh, and I just wonder whether you've had any thoughts as to how we might be able to improve that engagement moving forward. I know some people at a local level are really good at it. Again, I think the FE sector is getting much better now. Uh, but just as I say, any thoughts that you may have on that? Yeah, um, and this is actually kind of quite a big part of the change that we're going through um, at the DFE and also in the whole area of FE. So there's been a number of speeches. Uh, the Prime Minister's given one, the Secretary of State's given one, which is, you know, we, we actually, um, <laughs> we, we're for Falling behind in our technical education, further education, um, you know, the, 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 some of the things that people are going off to study are just not matching at all what, what's, what's required. So part of the um, skills white paper, which is, which is coming up at, towards the end of the year, is really looking at how to get much, much better at this, um, using FE colleges as a much, um, you know, trying to change the shape of of, of how they operate as well, so that they, you know, they get much more of a central role in that. Um, it's really key that we have, you know, the visibility is there. It works quite well in some other countries, so we've kind of copied that. And there's a couple of good things we've done. First of all, is with the qualifications, so with all the apprenticeship standards now and T levels, we've actually uh, worked with employers leading edge employers to design those qualifications so that they do have in them, embedded in them, the things that businesses are looking for. And they're not necessarily highly technical things that will change over a period of time. It's the skills and the ability uh, to, to be able to understand the fast-moving technolo technological environments, to have the basics, to have the, the understanding, the engineering or the whatever it is that you're, you're, you're doing. Um, so that is a big part of our focus. And I'm really excited by it because I've worked for much longer than I've been. A, in fact, I, I'll never be a politician for as long as I've worked. I don't think I'll live that long. Um, so, you know, and I've, I, you know, I've worked in loads of different 
jobs and I've seen loads of different jobs as well. I've now looked at some of these um, and I went to the construction team level the other day. My dad worked in construction for all his career, 40 odd years in, in McAlpine's. And, you know, it's amazing. It made me want to go back to school and do this thing. So they are, the, I think there's been so much learning to improve uh, where we are. So I'm very hopeful about the future. I'm very hopeful about a really good role for FE and for institutes of technology, which are really where FE and HE uh, work together on solving some of these issues as well. And yeah, I, I, I honestly believe that we, we will get to the next generation in how our young people are educated. And we need to, but I am actually, um, I, I'm very hopeful. And that's more from somebody who's been a business person recruiting thousands of people uh, you know, tearing my hair out, trying to find the skills because I've always been in kind of leading edge technology. Um, that, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think, I think we're going to get there. I'm very, very excited about what we've got uh, coming forward. Now we just need everyone to know about it and everyone to do uh, the thing that most suits them, knowing all the options that they have. Thanks, Jenny. You know, I'm so pleased I uh, said what I said about the City of Liverpool College because Elaine Bowker's on the call and she's uh, she's the principal, so, <laughs> so that's good. Um, uh, sorry, Elaine, if, if you want to ask a question, can you just pop it into the, the chat box? Because um, our technology on a Friday afternoon, and given the fact that the guys in the office have probably had a beer or two by now, um, might not stand us trying to flip from person to person on the screen. Unless Chris Wilcox tells me differently. Uh, but the first uh, comments come in from Stephen Hesketh. I don't know if you can see the chat box, um, Gillian, uh, but he's basically saying here, um, bu -bu -bu. he's talking about City and Girls hospitality badges. Uh, best part. How do you move on from this? As so much money is still waiters in this zone on apprenticeships. In hospitality, it doesn't work, other than perhaps in the kitchen. Um, so the word apprenticeship levy um, also adds confusion in the hospitality industry as waste of money since this introduction of the levy, numbers have gone backwards. So I, I think what he's saying is there's gaps in provision. Uh, and I think you picked up on some of that during your comments during the course of the conversation. Um, but is there anything specifically around hospitality um, that, that you're thinking about at the moment that's being looked at? Um, well, the first thing is we are doing, um, so there's apprenticeships and there's also the, the qualifications, full-time qualifications, um, and then there's the levy. Um, so in terms of the apprenticeships, so the, all the hospitality apprenticeships now should be moved on to standards, which are should should be uh, you know, a good standard for the level at which they're at. I mean, clearly some of these are level two, um, you know, sort of entry level qualifications. Um, I don't know if having done that, there are still some that are not. Um, but I, uh, if there is an issue there, then I'd be very happy to take it up with the Institute um, because I'm determined that we will have as good quality as, uh, as, as, as the, as the um, businesses who are going to employ in need. Um, in terms of full-time qualifications, we are also doing reviews of a lot of the full-time qualifications to make sure they are really, really still what the, the, up to date in terms of what businesses need and at the right level. So that's another review, which a consultation, which is started, which is going on now actually till the end of what well, 
to, to the end of January. In terms of the levy, so what the levy did is the levy obviously added a levy to large employers that, that had, um, you know, big uh, pay bills. And they, you know, they, I remember my husband worked uh, for Fujitsu at the time and he was very unhappy when the levy came in because they had a huge bill, which he just saw as a tax on jobs, as many, many large businesses did. Um, but, but the other thing that happened when it was first brought in is smaller and medium-sized businesses found it harder to access apprenticeships. So what's happened since then is being able, the levy system now is working much better. And actually, we're doing more work to make it work much more easily for SMEs so that we can get the numbers of SMEs uh, back. Because some of the levy money doesn't get spent. Um, and, you know, there's this ability to transfer 25%. Most of that doesn't get transferred. Now, they're relatively new systems but what I've said to everyone is we absolutely need to make sure that we lubricate that system you know we get this money we make sure it's there and it's working with the colleges with the uh, training providers um, and it's working for SMEs as well and I think that's going to be also a vital part of our um, recovery uh, as well you know some large businesses will be reasonably unscathed. Some large businesses will be absolutely decimated, um, you know, depending on the sector they're in. And, you know, there'll be a lot of flexibility around with small businesses as well. So we absolutely have to get that working. And, you know, I spend quite a lot of my time because I know exactly what I'm solving for there. It's like, you know, this needs to be easy. It needs to work. We need to have people selling it, which are basically the colleges will go out and sell to businesses. The training providers will go out and sell to businesses. We've made some changes through the pandemic. So there used to be, you know, SMEs could only put three reservations on the system. They can now do 10. Um, so, you know, it makes it, you know, a little easier. But yeah. I won't stop until that's as easy as possible. Um, and, you know, but I do think um, that plus the incentives hopefully will um, kick, sort of kick prime that, that part of the system over, over the early part of next year when we're going to need it. Thanks, Gillian. Um, there's a comment here from Debbie Asinda. Only 17% of women are currently in tech. This will be uh, an issue close to your heart, I'm sure, Gillian. A report by PwC said only 3% of young girls see their future in tech. This year, we had the lowest number of girls take any form of computer studies at GCSE. Uh, any plans to reverse this? So uh, there's an easy one for you. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's 100%. Um, it's, I don't know how many organisations, I mean, obviously across government, we do all kinds of things to, you know, we've got the, the coding in schools, we've got the girls coding, we've got all of the women in engineering, we've got so many initiatives. And, you know, it kind of breaks my heart a little bit as well. I've been going around to some of the new T-level students and, you know, there's a digital T-level and 99% of the digital T-level students will be young boys. And then there's the education and childcare and 99% of the education and childcare um, students will be young girls. Uh, construction is a bit more of a mix now, so uh, which is great to see. Um, and you know, I do have a female cousin who's a quantity surveyor, and you know, and, and she spends a lot of her time trying to get more. Um, you know, I think we have to change the image of these jobs. I think I think people 
because of the career, again, it all comes back to careers and understanding about careers. I think a lot of people have preconceptions about things which are completely out of date. So I don't think there's a job almost that exists now without technology. I, don't, I can't think of, even if you look at the construction T level, about a third of it is tech. It's CAD CAM, it's computer-aided design, it's, um, you know, everything. Technology has changed the way every business operates. It's changed almost everything that we do. Even, even in, you know, the health service, there's a big part of what they do that technology is a part of, how they use that technology, et cetera. And then, of course, you've also got NHS Digital, which is one of the biggest digital um, employers in the country. So all of these things and, and the careers, I just think it's a lack of real understanding of, of, of the careers and, and where you'll get to um, with these particular things. I think, I think it's, it's really depressing because it kind of hasn't moved on in 30 years. Girls still do this, boys still do that. And it's just astonishing. If you go to Taiwan, you'll find, you know, in almost no time, they've completely reversed that. Um, and, you know, they'll have more than half of their maths and computer engineering graduates are girls now. Fantastic. So it can be done. It can be done. Yeah. Work in progress. And uh, I think you've got the right person in charge to try and press that agenda forward. Listen, I, we, we're getting an explosion of questions and I'm conscious of the time. We are going to do our very best to get Gillian back. We're hoping to do a live event with her uh, at some point um, when she gets a little less busy. I'm not sure when that will be. Um, but let's just go to let's go to the question from Liz Smith because Liz is the principal over at another fine college, Preston's College, uh, who we do a lot of work with as well in Lancashire. Um, so Liz, say great to hear your understanding and appreciation of how people come into FE. FE not having the best learning experience, but flourish through skills development. How can we help influence DFE to appreciate some of the challenges and yet potential of these people and therefore the flexibilities and funding to support? Again, Julian, I think you touched upon your own frustrations earlier. You know, this idea that if people come out of school without qualifications, it's almost that's it, it's done for them. Uh, your attitude uh, great to hear. Very different to that, of course. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, you know, I I, I left school. My best friend left school with one. Um, it was actually a CSE grade one, so it wasn't even a proper one, really. Um, and now, she, you know, she's now got a degree and two master's degrees and runs um, Clatterbridge Private um, uh, Cancer Clinic um, Hospital uh, in the Wirral, right? And she left with zero. She'd have been a level zero. And so I, I've seen so many people like that uh, who just have, you know, completely uh, went against the odds, actually, and, and did something in their 20s and 30s, or 40s even. So completely. And now in terms of, so, you know, from what I understand, there is extra funding for English and maths, and there's extra funding uh, to, you know, to, to help people get um, their English and maths. One of the things that I've been looking into actually is, is the success rate of that. Um, because, and, and I understand it, you know, um, I think the world divides. I still remember my maths class. The world divided once algebra was opened up. And, you know, there was people who were never going to believe X equaled anything unknown. <laughs> it was not going to happen. And the world just divided there. And 
you know, and, and, and that was it. And so I can see, I can 100% see the challenge, you know, that the chance of, you know, trying to get a, a, you know, a young guy from our school to want to kill a mockingbird would have uh, not been by reading the book. So, you know, yeah, I, I can see the challenge, but, you know, we have to, we have to help them overcome that challenge because the reality is every business now you speak to is like, you know, you really do need these basic skills to get on. So I think um, one of the things I'm quite excited by, which are relatively new, and I don't know whether Preston's part of this, actually, um, or any of the colleges that are on, uh, but it's the, the Centre for Excellence for Maths, which is a new initiative that's being piloted in a number of places. Um, and I'm hopeful, and then if we can get that right, we can do one for English uh, hopefully as well, but I'm hopeful that that can break the cycle. And what it's doing is looking at whether we can better contextualize and have a more whole college approach to trying to get people over this hurdle, which by this time have become hurdles in their head about maths and English. Uh, so I do understand the challenge, but it's sort of one that, you know, I keep saying to college leaders when they say, you know, this is a difficult challenge. I say, you know what? The only reason we're here sat in our jobs is because there's difficult challenges. If there were no difficult challenges, they wouldn't need any of us. They'd all just be off being brilliant, doing whatever they're doing. We are here because there's difficult challenges. And, you know, all we have to do is pick our way through them one by one. Um, and I believe that there's extra funding. That's my understanding. Um, but um, what one thing I do know is I've never been on a single call where there hasn't been a cry for more funding from somebody. Uh, that's another that's another thing that's different about this world than, than the business world. I never heard that in the business world. But uh, that's something that, uh, you know, obviously is. And it's the way it all works. You know, there's a comprehensive spending review. You know, there's everybody gets their ducks in a row. You know, there's an orchestration around that. Uh, but it's very different um, uh, thing to see as well. So maths and English, they ha we have to get them through it because it's important for them. And it's important. They'll learn more if they have it. Okay. It's as simple as that. Gillian, I'm going to bring the conversation to an end now only because, as I say, we've we've taking the allotted hour, and I know you've uh, many other things to be getting on with, hopefully campaigning for a bit more cash through that comprehensive spending review. Um, the, the one thing I would say about the whole area of education, skills and training, I say this uh, in other areas of policy as well, is I'm not necessarily uh, think uh, one of those people who think there's not enough money in the system. I'm just not sure it's spent as efficiently and as effectively as maybe it could be. And there are areas I think we've touched upon today that have maybe highlighted one or two of those areas. It's been great to see you. Thanks very much for joining us. And, yeah. And it's great that somebody from uh, Chichester hasn't required a, an interpreter uh, for the interview today. <laughs> I do in Chichester. I get very excited <laughs> when I find a fellow scouser in Chichester. There's a couple. Um, but um, I, yeah, by the way, I'm very happy. Uh, Mark Butchard, who arranged this, who yeah. organised it, yeah, uh, has, has spent a long time delivering leaflets when he didn't have to, um, <laughs> helping me when I was absolutely no one and going absolutely nowhere, um, helping me to try and get somewhere. So I am completely indebted to him. So I normally do what he has to do. So I'm very happy to uh, come back and do another session and also when we can move around i need to see my parents anyway but when we can move around i'd love to come and see uh you know come and come and visit some of the colleges as well um up in the northwest because i am a regular visitor 
to the northwest. So um, it's very, very easy for me to arrange to do so. Um, and, and also, uh, you know, any of the universities doing degree apprenticeships as well. Fantastic. Well, we'd love to get you into Liverpool and to Preston's College, I'm sure. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in the flesh. Thanks very yeah. much for being, being Thank great. Thank you there. so much. And I'm sure people have been absolutely delighted to find a government minister with hands-on experience for the thing they're responsible for. Absolutely fantastic. Thanks, Gillian. Have a great weekend. This season of the Downtown Dead podcast, we are focusing on inspirational female business leaders. And on Friday, the 10th of March, we're hosting our annual Women in Business Awards at the Crown Plaza Hotel. We'll be celebrating the best in business from across the Liverpool City region. And if you haven't voted for your favourite female business leader yet, go to our website, all the W's downtownandbusiness.com, have a look at the nominees and vote for your favourites. If you've not booked a ticket yet, what are you waiting for? It's a great day, a great occasion. We'd love to see you there. Tickets are going fast. Again, get to our website, downtownandbusiness.com, Book your tickets today.